0: Well, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we're uh, in the middle of a series at the moment that we're calling One Another, where we basically went through the New Testament and had a look at the numerous amounts of the One Another commandments that you find. And as I said last week, you will run out of fingers and toes pretty quickly uh, when you count the amount of times we're instructed as Christians uh, to live in a One Another type fashion. And so this week we come into our final One Another text. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and we're going to round out this series in there today. So 1 Peter chapter 4 and I want to begin this morning by reading verses 7 through 11, just five verses today. Here's what Peter has to say. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you didn't uh, know this about me already, I'm a self confessed, uh, self diagnosed nerd. that's me. Uh, one of the things I particularly like to nerd out on is theology, but more specifically, there's a little subdivision of theology that I particularly enjoy. It's the study of what is commonly called eschatology. Uh, eschatology simply means the study of the last things, uh, which includes some of the details around what the Bible has to say about the second coming. Jesus, this is something that I've taken upon myself as something of a a bit of a hobby. I nerd out on this subject quite a bit, so I am totally cool with talking about things like the millennial reign of Christ or the abomination of desolation, the Olivet discourse, Mark of the Beast, and the rapture. These are the things I do just for a little bit of fun on a Sunday afternoon. Now, the second I say that, I reckon I can even see it a little bit. You might look at me with a little bit of hesitation, right? You're going. Jaden, come on, man, like, is that really the, the priority of what we should be spending our time nerding out on in Scripture? Is that really where you're going to focus your attention? And I think part of the hesitation we have towards topics like that is because there are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who have some pretty crazy, pretty wacky ideas about how we should prepare, about how we should live as Christians in light of the second coming of Christ. It becomes something of an obsession, Uh, Has anyone here seen the movie Ice Age? Uh, Yeah, a bit of a classic, hopefully more people. But this one came out in uh, 2002, and I reckon it's one of my favorite animated films of all time. It's about this curious herd of animals that develops. You've got Manny the mammoth, you've got Sid the sloth, uh, and then you've also got Diego the saber-toothed tiger. And these guys are trying to return this lost baby to its father. And what happens is, on this strange journey with this weird herd, they stumble across this rather unusually obsessed flock of dodos uh, on this particular film. And these dodos, like perhaps some Christians we've met, they're kind of obsessed with this idea of the end of the world. They're kind of parading about, going, prepare for the ice age. I don't know, but I've been told, end of the world, be mad cold. And these dodos are just carrying on. They've, they've made it their life obsession to prepare for the Ice Age. And uh, what this strange herd uh, soon discovers is that the, the grand plan to survive a million billion years of sub-Arctic temperatures is they've stockpiled three watermelons. <laughs> it's like, really? That's your grand plan to survive the Ice Age, right? And these, these dodos, they'll do everything to defend these watermelons. They're going a bit nuts. They start doing what they call Taekwondo and they start attacking this unusual herd of animals. So um, we see scenes like that, and they are quite hilarious, but sadly they're all too familiar. We do see Christians, in fact, carrying on in that light. People hear about the second coming of Christ, and sometimes they can get political about it. They might start obsessively tracking some of the movements of what's happening in Israel and other Middle Eastern nations, and it just becomes something of an obsession for other people they'll start buying shipping containers and they start carrying on like it's the Y2K bug again where they're trying to just store up cans of uh, baked beans and all sorts of things and we need to get ready for the end. And then for some people, it it just becomes an opportunity to try and predict the date. Um, Back in 2011, I'm not sure if anyone was familiar, but um, there was a guy by the name of Harold Camping and he had a very large percentage of American Christians convinced that he had picked the date for the second coming of Christ. He said that on May 21st, 2011, the rapture would occur. And then on October 21st, that would be judgment day. And there were people parading around the streets. No, it's a done deal. It's locked in. And it became something of an obsession, right? So I get it if you have a bit of a hesitation when it comes to this idea of the second coming of Christ. But how does Peter begin there in verse seven? He says, the end of all things... Is at hand. You see, Christianity is always a forward looking faith. Christianity is always pregnant with anticipation. And what Peter is saying here is that the way that we conduct ourselves as Christians here in the present ought to be, at least in some sense, informed by a sound understanding of the return of Jesus. Now, granted, there are all sorts of different views out there that you can call orthodox, but Perhaps one of the most undiscussed topics within the debate is really just what I would describe as the normalness that Christ will return to. Look with me to um, Matthew 24. This is what Jesus said uh, in verses 36 to 44. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You can't predict the date. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken. And one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you see that there? Jesus is coming back to just a garden variety day on planet Earth. Someone, someone might have just ordered a coffee. Someone else will be out doing the groceries. Someone will be at work. Someone might even be on their honeymoon. And Jesus will enter into that ordinary, normal, everyday rhythm of human life when he comes back. And we don't know exactly when that's supposed to be. And I think part of the necessary ambiguity there is so that we live with a kind of sober expectation. There is a sense in which rightly understood that you and I should live our lives with a sober reality that Jesus could potentially return tomorrow. That is the sense in which we're supposed to live our life. We don't hear about the second coming of Jesus and kind of go into some sort of retreat and withdrawal mentality. We don't carry on like frantic dodos in Ice Age. No, Peter says here that we need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. There's a steadiness that we should have in light of his return. And one of the things that he emphasizes there in verse 7, he says, we're to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. You see, you can't really pray sensibly when you're in the middle of some sort of apocalyptic hysteria. So Peter says, be sober-minded about these things. And what we're going to see in this text today is not only will it reorient our prayers, but it's going to reorient some of our priorities when it comes to how we conduct ourselves as Christians. So There's a few things I want us to consider today and the first is this, in light of the second coming of Jesus, Peter says that we should love one another earnestly. He says there above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, In my youth, I played a fair bit of Aussie rules football, that was my choice sport for many, many years and over those years, let me tell you, I've had some really good coaches, some coaches who are, you know, had some involvement with XAFL and, and all that kind of thing, uh, and then I've had some absolute shockers. Now, some of the best coaches I've ever had are the ones that had realistic expectations. I mean, they had other attributes as well, but one of the things that stands out for me when I see a good coach is they're realistic about what's going to go on on a football field. In fact, the best coach I ever had sat us down as a team at the start of the year and was giving us a kind of team address, and one of the things he said, I'll never forget it, he said, "Boys." make no mistake, we're going to lose some games of football this year. You might go, why would a coach say that? say that? Like, don't coaches normally give you a rev up? We'll never lose, never be defeated. No, he said, no, guys, we're, we're going to lose some games of football this year. We'll, we'll probably drop a few marks. We'll miss a few targets. Um, we're going to lose some games of football this year. Now, he wasn't encouraging deliberate laziness by any means. What he was saying is that when you drop a mark, when you lose a game, I need you to be able to Stay positive as a unit. I need you to be able to conduct yourself in such a way that you can get on to the next quarter, get on to the next game. That's what he was trying to encourage. I'll never forget this one particular night at training. I'd worked really hard to sprint out to the halfback flank. The ball should have been kicked to me. I was out in the open. It was, you know, it was a no-brainer. The ball should have come to me. But my opponent, sorry, my teammate, decided that he would take it out the other way. And I was ropeable. I said something that I would not repeat in church. And the coach heard it. And um, we were brought back in as a team, and uh, he said, "Jaden, mate, um, what'd you do wrong?" I'm thinking, "Oh, I think I missed that handball at one point." You go, "No, no, no, the other thing." Sorry, mate, I've got no idea what you're talking about, mate. You, the ball didn't get kicked to you. I saw it. You worked really hard to go and get it, but how'd you respond? You let out a big, and I said what I said. And what he was saying is, "I need you to stay really positive as a unit." <laughs> and he was one of the best coaches I ever had. Conversely, some of the worst coaches I've ever had are the ones that have no realistic expectations whatsoever. I'll never forget this one week, I have one particular assistant coach in mind, I was injured this particular day, I was up in the, the coaching box with him. Literally the first bounce of the day, the game has just started, the first person to get their hand on the ball was the opposition and he starts going, oh, look at this, how do we do that? what's going on here, it's like... I'm thinking, mate, are you kidding yourself? The game's just started. The ball's contested. You didn't think it was possible that the other team may actually touch the ball at some point throughout the game? We're not versing witches' hats here. And sadly, we can kind of carry those kind of unrealistic expectations when we come into a local church, can't we? We can come in thinking that everyone is a witch's hat in the sense that they will never hurt or disappoint us. And the second someone does, sometimes what we do instead of moving towards them, we tap out. The truth is that you're a sinner. We're all sinners. We're on on board a ship full of sinners that's captained by sinners. (laughs) Welcome aboard. (laughs) Do you think it's possible that somewhere along our journey we're going to come into conflict and disagreement with one another? Yeah, I, I think that's a certainty, actually. In fact, Jesus knew this as well. Look at what uh, he had to say in Matthew 18. This is a curious encounter with Peter. Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 22. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother, that is fellow Christian, sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. You see, in those days, there was this rabbinical view that if you forgave someone three times, you'd given them a fair go. Like there was a three strikes and you're out policy in some rabbinic Judaism, right? So what Peter does is like, right, well, I know the Pharisees and some of the rabbis do the whole three strikes you're out policy. Watch this, Jesus. Look how generous I am with forgiveness. I'm going to double it plus one. Lord, if I forgive him seven times, is that good enough? And Jesus effectively says, hey, Peter, put the calculator away. (laughs) What if I got the calculator out on you? Do you think it might exceed seven times? See, for Christianity, forgiveness never stops. We don't record forgiveness on an Excel spreadsheet like we're doing the bookkeeping. We've got to put our calculators away. (laughs) This is what Peter means when he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this isn't like justification by brotherly love ultimately our sin was covered because of the cross work of jesus it's only by his blood that we are saved by faith and faith alone but earnest brotherly love which is motivated by the saving work of jesus in the local church it does serve as a kind of fire blanket to some of the conflict that we will encounter i love what uh, wayne Grudem had to say on this he said where love abounds in a fellowship of christians many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten but where love is lacking every word is viewed with suspicion every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to satan's perverse delight do you know that one of satan's devices is to try and split each of us apart that's something that we need to be discerning of as we conduct ourselves in the local church you know it's possible that when you come into conflict, someone may have wronged you. But we also need to say, is there anything in me that I might have done wrong in this situation? And thirdly, we've got a, there's a third party to consider. Is there any kind of direct opposition from our enemy where he's trying to pull us apart over spilt milk? These are things we have to be on guard on as the local church. See, we've got uh, 11 community groups in our church now, which I think is pretty cool, and we've got some youth community groups starting up soon, but let me tell you, they would easily fall apart if we don't earnestly love one another. Community is a beautiful thing, but it's also really, really messy, <laughs> and this is the mess Jesus calls us to love, and I pray that we're all prepared for it. Proverbs 10 says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That's what the first thing Peter wants us to see. But then the second thing he says is that in light of the second coming of Christ, show hospitality. And he says to do so without grumbling. When I was growing up uh, in our household, it became increasingly difficult for us to have dinner together as a family. So I'm one of four kids and my mum would labour intensively to try and get us to sit down at the table together, which just got impossible. I mean, We would had a couple of boys at football training, which made it hard. Others were at the gym. My sister would have dancing. And then the second you get the kids together, dad would be home late from work. And it just became a bit of a mission in our household to try and have a family dinner. And so my mum would, uh, when we would finally get together, however rare that was, she had this cheesy little saying that I would cringe at. She would just kind of get this fluffy look in her face and just be like, oh, isn't it nice for all sitting at the table together? And at that point, like you got four teenagers just ready to bolt, you know, it's just like, like someone called the lame police. I don't need this Brady Bunch thing. Please, can we, um, can we not do this? In fact, I think my dad would often uh, say, Darl, if you say that again, we're going to have to pour some water on you or something. This is just not cool. The cheese factor is alive and well. But um, in retrospect, I have to concede something to my mum today. I think she was onto something. Um, I was reading a book this week called A Meal with Jesus. It was written by a pastor named Tim Chester. And one of the things he highlights, one of the tragedies that we see in our Western contemporary culture is that hospitality has really become over-commercialized. We've even got entire university degrees uh, on hospitality now. And it's sort of lost its original round-the-table ruggedness that hospitality used to have. It's sort of becoming a bit of a relic from the past. There are many homes today that don't even have dining rooms. Sadly, more and more of us, I'm probably part of this as well, we're not particularly good at cooking compared to the way many generations before us were, and so we'll do things like Uber Eats. We'll go out for coffee, but we're far less likely to have someone come over to our place. And then part of the discussion, and this is an entire discussion altogether, is that the idea of woman as homemaker is just about frowned upon now. And so it's becoming a bit of a relic from the past, this idea of hospitality. You see, the modern home now is viewed less of a place of welcome and it's more of a place of withdrawal. It's kind of a sanctuary. It's like, no, don't impinge upon my little, my little sanctuary over here. I don't want you to impinge upon this particular part of my life. Please, step away. This is my place of inner peace and tranquility. Please. But if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, where did he do a, lot, a large percentage of his ministry? in people's homes, over a meal. So much so that people accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton. Well, the reason they could accuse him of such is because he spent a lot of time eating and drinking. Not in excess, though, of course. And in like manner, as you see the life of Jesus and then you see how the early church plays out in Acts and as you read church history, what you'll see is that fellowship meals or what they called love feasts just made up the DNA of what it was to be part of God's people. Uh, we see this in all sorts of ways. In, in Acts chapter 20, you can see when Paul visits the church in Troas, it says that they broke bread together. Now we hear that and we might think communion and you'd be right to think that. But the other way breaking bread together <coughs> uh, can be understood is it literally meant they had dinner. They had a meal together. They had a love feast, a meal of fellowship. And this is what it was to be part of the local church. In fact, uh, something I discovered this week which I thought was fascinating. Look at um, 1 Corinthians 5.11. Look at how Paul attends church discipline here. (laughs) He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, here's the kicker, not even to eat with such a one. (laughs) Do you see that? That... Eating with your fellow Christian was so normative to be part of the local church that part of church discipline was to exclude the wayward believer from participating in some of these meals. They're like, hey, you want to rebel against Jesus like that? You want to have that recalcitrant state of heart? No potato salad for you. It was part of church discipline. (laughs) Hospitality has always been a big part of what it means to be amongst God's people. Here's a quote from Tim Chester that I read this week. He says, There's nothing wrong with eating out or hosting a special meal. Amen. Indeed, there's a lot right with it. But somewhere along the line, the commercialization of meals has cost us something precious. Hospitality has become performance art, and we've lost the creation of intimacy around a meal. Many people love the idea of the church as a community, but when we eat together, we encounter not some theoretical community, but real people with all their problems and quirks. The meal table is an opportunity to give up our proud ideals by which we judge others and accept in their place the real community created by the cross of Christ with all its brokenness. It's easy to love people in some abstract sense and preach the virtues of love, but we're called to love the real individuals sitting around the table. (coughs) Let me just gently ask you this morning, if you are currently dissatisfied disgruntled about not feeling connected here at the project or or maybe you haven't felt connected in in other churches which is a thing we i'm sure we've all experienced at some point can i just gently push at that for a moment this morning and ask you this question when was the last time you invited someone over for a meal you see for many of us um if we were to answer that question it might actually be in the negative Now, yes, it's true that sometimes the church has failed to create community and it can leave people uh, hung and dry when it comes to feeling part of a family. But the truth is there is a kind of personal ownership that Peter's talking about here. We're to show hospitality to one another. You see, one of the most sober things that you can do in response to the second coming of Christ is to go down to Bunnings and buy a barbecue. (laughs) Peter is basically saying, put some snags on the barbie because The return of the the Lord is at hand. Jesus could be back tomorrow, put some snags on the barbie. That's what Peter's getting at here. Now, I agree. There are those in the church who just have like the gift of hospitality, like they've got it in spades. I watched um, Joe and the team during the restoration intensive. Man, they have got the gift of hospitality. Um, But it's not one that any of us can actually tap out on. Hospitality is an all play. Look at some of the scriptures that you see um, for example, in Romans and again in Hebrews. <coughs> so Romans twelve thirteen it says contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He's talking to the church. Uh, Hebrews thirteen let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels, unaware. What the text is these texts are saying is that hospitality has both internal and external. Implications. So internally, it's a way in which we love and serve one another, but then externally, it is one of the like top of the shelf evangelistic strategies in the Bible to invite someone over for a meal. You want to win someone to Christ? Have them over for dinner. That is part of the Bible's evangelistic strategy. And who knows? You might even entertain Gabriel while you're at it. Hebrews thirteen two. But if you had to pick, what what's Peter's focus here? Is he going more external or internal? He's going internal. He says, show hospitality to one another, to your fellow Christian. And he says to do so without grumbling. Let's be honest, hospitality is hard. You've got to do the whole trip to the shops. There's the cost of the groceries. There's the excessive amounts of cleaning, lest people think that we're inhuman. There's the risk of spills on the new carpet. Do we bring out the good wine glasses or the dodgy stuff? I mean, it's hard work. But... Um, the other thing we need to consider is that Peter has just spoken about love covering a multitude of sins and then he kind of tax hospitality on top of it. I don't know that that's just a coincidence. I think, um, I think part of the way we show earnest love is by hospitality. I think these things are linked. Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then the next point that Peter wants to make, he says that in light of the second coming, serve one another. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now, some of you might be going, hey, Jaden, that doesn't include me. I don't have any gifts. I've checked the biblical lists. I've seen Romans 12. I've seen 1 Corinthians 12. I don't have one. Um, I think I'm exempt from this particular command. Well, look at verse 10 there. It says, each has received a gift. If you're in Christ, whether you realize it or not, you have a gift. And the truth is, the body of Christ needs you to operate in that gift. There is a kind of corporate disadvantage that comes about when a Christian decides to put their gift on the shelf and allow it to accumulate dust. Look what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. You see, poor stewardship of our gifts doesn't just have individual consequences, it has corporate consequences. You see, I wonder how many churches throughout history have been unable to plant a new church simply because the person in the congregation with those gifts never rose to the occasion. I wonder how many sermons have gone unpreached, how many orphanages have not been started, how many hymns will go unwritten, how many newcomers to church will be left unwelcomed. The list could go on. And the startling reality is, is that it doesn't only have individual and corporate consequences. The Bible is pretty clear that it actually has eternal consequences. In Matthew 25 we have a pretty famous parable called the parable of the talents. Now it would take a full sermon to explain it, but just know that there is a severe pronouncement against those who, instead of stewarding their gift, bury it in the ground. The Bible's got a bit to say about it. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, The worst sin against stewardship is to waste your life. Peter says there in verse 11 that we do all of this. We speak and we serve in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this morning. Is there anything that you have that maybe no one else in the church has to the same degree or same strength that, I don't know, maybe it's buried at the moment. Maybe it's accumulated a bit of dust and the Holy Spirit wants to exhort you and say, let's let's get it off the shelf. Let's pull it up out of the ground. Let's not bury our gifts. We need to be stewards of them in light of the second coming of Christ. Now, having said all of that, if you are genuinely struggling to find out where you fit when it comes to serving God's people. Here's just, can I just bust a couple of myths this morning and give a couple of tips, some, some low-hanging fruit when it comes to this idea of gifts. Firstly, is that the list of gifts that we see in the Bible is not exhaustive, okay? So we can't come to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and be like, no, nah, sorry, don't meet any of those. I'm exempt from duty. Theologians tend to agree that, Paul and Peter, when they're writing these lists, they're they're throwing together a significant amount of them, but it's not to say they're exhaustive. There would be gifts that you could potentially have that aren't necessarily listed. So let's go to those lists for for clarity from Scripture, but let's not get lost in those lists. So that's something to consider. The second thing we need to consider is that gifts vary in strength, okay? So for some of you, you, you may be not... You may not have the voice of Darlene Check, but you might have a voice that God is asking you to come and use to His glory. I, I'm, I try and teach the Bible. My goodness, I'm not John Piper. I'm not D. A. Carson as much as I'd love to be. Gifts vary in strength, so be encouraged. Whatever gift you have, use it to the glory of God. And the other thing as well is that you can have more than one gift. Okay, so once you establish that you have a gift and say right. I've got the gift of encouragement. That's my gift. You can't just walk past Barry Palmer and say, sorry, Barry, can't help you stack chairs after church today. I've got the gift of encouragement. I don't want to operate outside my jurisdiction, okay? It doesn't work like that. You can have a variety of gifts, okay? You might be like an administrative, prophetic, speaker-in-tongues, gift-of-encouragement type person. Who knows what you have? You can have a curious smoothie full of gifts, right? And then finally, the thing we need to be reminded of is that we figure out our gifts often as we serve. And usually those gifts are affirmed by other people. You can't sort of go into a state of you know, meditation and introspection and figure out your gifts, although prayer is indeed part of it. Sometimes if you're uncertain, the, the key is to put your hand at the plough somewhere and your brothers and sisters in Christ will let you know very quickly. If they find it edifying when you get involved in that. If I joined the music team, I'm sure there were people who would let me know very quickly it's not particularly edifying. <laughs> I would sing out of key all too often, you see. So one of the things we're called to do here is to serve one another. And so just as a real practical note as, as we wrap up in a moment, perhaps Nate can come and join me. We've got some, um, some holes we'd like to fill here at the project. I mentioned... Barry Palmer before. We've got some, we've got some room. Uh, if you have the sort of gift of helps, you've, you've got a strong body with, that's not as orthopedically challenged as mine and you can help set up church in the morning, we would love if you can come and be part of that team. We pray that you would come and, and serve one another in that light. We've got some youth community groups starting up soon. We've got two we think we've got squared away and we're looking to do a third and I'm hoping that you know, maybe there's one or two young men Uh, who are keen to disciple some of the teenage boys in our church maybe that's something God's stirring on your heart to do we've got some we've got some holes and uh, the good thing is is that when God calls his church together he brings the right people to fill those holes if one suffers we all suffer Project Church Jesus is coming back I don't know when it might be tomorrow it might be 2,000 years from now when he came the first time, he came to perform his cross work. He, he died on the cross in our place for our sins, to atone for them. But when he's coming back the second time, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And there is a way that we are commanded to live in light of that reality. It's a sobering reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. And where it all starts is right here in the local church. Now, if you, if you haven't guessed it already, yes, this... This series, this one another series, was a bit of a plug to get you into a community group. Yes, sprung, you got me. (laughs) But yes, as we've considered these topics over the last four weeks, as we've learned that we're to teach and admonish one another, as we're to bear with one another, as we're to not bite and devour one another, as we're to pray for and confess our sins to one another, and then today, as we're to serve, love, and show hospitality to one another. Our hope and prayer is that we can facilitate that as best as we can through community groups here at the Project Church. So we would love, in order to see these one another commandments come to life, that they wouldn't just be words on a page for you, would you jump in? And we would love if you could be a part of that.